Well, the first time I ate it, I didn't know what it was. That's my concession. That's my admission. I didn't know what it was the first time I ate it. Um, it was a long time ago, 25 years ago, which when I say that, like when you say quarter of a century, it was a long time ago. I was a young man. I'm on a plane flight and um, I'm going to Ireland for various reasons. And so they serve up dinner on the plane. Great. It's an Irish meal. Great. And I hook into this sausage and it is delicious. Just, I've just never had anything like it before. My principle, of course, in life has always been eat everything. My mum taught me, eat everything on the plate in front of you. Whoever serves it, no matter what it is, no matter where you are, you eat everything. And so I eat everything. That's my working principle. No questions asked. I just eat. And I, the Lord says to Peter, get up and eat. So it doesn't matter what it is. Well, I was meeting this sausage. I, I, I asked for seconds. They had seconds. They had spare plates, spare dishes. And then I'm 20 years old, so I had thirds. That's not a working principle for me anymore. And as I eat, I'm just thinking, mmm, this is delicious. What is this sausage? And they said, oh, it's called black pudding. I said, great, a pudding, but it's a sausage. And they said, well, technically it's not like a sausage you're used to. See, the sausages that I normally eat are made out of meat. Well, so they say. But it's, you know, it's, it's meant to, like, it's a sausage, it's meat, it's cut up, it's meat. Not so black pudding. Not so this Irish sausage, which is a delicacy in Ireland. It's actually a blood sausage. Black pudding is a big, thick sausage made mostly, entirely, with some cereal mixed in to give it some consistency. It's made out of blood. Cooked beef or pork blood. Delicacy in Ireland, I found it delicious, but just talking about eating and drinking blood can turn us off a little bit, can't it? Couldn't it? When you heard those words from Jesus, how did you feel? When we, we hear it, when we preach through books of the Bible, which means we don't skip texts, we don't just preach on the favourites or hobby horses of the preacher. We pick a book. What is God wanting to teach us? And his word that he's ordered and breathed onto the pages of the Bible, what does he want to say? And so we read everything and we preach everything. And as we do that, we come across passages like this that go, I'd never heard of that. What in the world? Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a whole crowd of people walk away because of it. We need to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not trying to be, here's a delicacy. Try it. He's not trying to be controversial, but he's trying to bring something really important for us to see. And the question he has for us asking this morning is this. What does it mean? If we saw last week Jesus, the bread of life, what does it mean that we are to feed on him as the bread of life? What does it actually mean in practice to feed on Jesus? Well, firstly, we need to see this bread has come down from heaven. And that makes all the difference for understanding what it means to feed on him. Because a lot of people have got mixed up on what it means to feed on Jesus. But firstly, we must see he is the bread from heaven. I mean, last week we saw that Jesus, in, in the early part of John 6, he had fed 5,000 people, he had walked on water, and then he had to explain to them all that's happened. He's teaching them. We pick it up in verse 59. It does seem that from the beginning of 
well, the, the place that we read in verse 41, it seems that Jesus is teaching this whole entire section of the back end of John 6. He's in the synagogue. Now, why is that important? Why would John the Apostle write that? He's teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. For a couple of reasons, we'll see that unravel in this episode. The first one is, it's important to recognise Jesus feeds 5,000 people, but there's not necessarily 5,000 people in the synagogue. Um, I nerded out a little bit during the week and I, I looked up some theological articles on synagogue practice in the first and second century. It's, I find it fascinating because one of my hobbies is I, I love is reading articles like that and I love the church. And it, when you read about the early first century synagogues, it's very similar practice to a church. It's in fact why we inherit many of the things we do here. You see, the synagogue is not the temple. The temple is the place in Jerusalem where you go for, for that point of gathered worship as an assembled people of God, but you particularly go surrounding, of course, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. A synagogue is not like that. But a synagogue, synagogue sprang up, of course, out of the exile. Because when God's people Israel can't get to the temple and they're in Babylon, what are they going to do for 70 years? They need to hear the promises of God. Why are we here? Why has this happened to us? Is God still gracious? Does he still love me? And so they gathered together. The word synagogue, or the Greek New Testament word synagogue, means literally gathering. They had gathered worship in their towns. And the high point of gathered worship for them, and for us, by the way, is hearing God's word preached to their hearts. It's hearing it read, yes, But in the New Testament, there's a whole theology, and we'll get into this another time, of the preached word. Peter writes, this is the word that was preached to you. The preached word matters, friends. It mattered to them and it matters to us. And look who's preaching it on that day. It's Jesus. He's in the Capernaum, in the synagogue, and he's preaching. They call him rabbi in verse 25. We pick it up there. And as he preaches, there's some grumbling. Perhaps it's in the back seats or it's somewhere, but he knows there's some grumbling and there's a bit of dialogue that happens, a bit of Q&A. And what are they grumbling about? His sermon topic, that he is the bread that came down from heaven. That's what they're grumbling about. And he's the second reason it's important to notice he's in the synagogue at Capernaum. Because what are they grumbling? What are they saying? We pick it up there. They're grumbling, verse 42... Because Capernaum is his region of growing up. They're like, is he kidding himself? This is Jesus. We know his parents. Like, we know Joseph. We know Mary. There's a bit of a controversy at that point too. We remember that back then, you know, like 30 years ago and how the birth happened. We know this family. They're from the region of Galilee. He's preaching in Galilee. He's the country boy preaching in the country synagogue. He's saying he's the bread from heaven. Who does he think he's kidding? Who does he think he's kidding? But what Jesus is speaking about is really important for them to get and for us to get. He's speaking about the gracious incarnation that is accommodating grace by God. The gracious accommodation of the incarnation is actually another stream of theology you can read into. It's very fascinating but more than that it actually moves us to understand who jesus is and john's gospel is all about it 
the gracious accommodation of the incarnation. That here's, here's the grace of God. Do you know that the God speaking into human language all throughout the ages, that is an act of grace, isn't it? The God would speak into human language, that he would accommodate himself into human language at any point in human history is a gracious act of God. Then, that God would then send the word to be incarnate. The word Latin word carnal means flesh. Carnal, flesh, fleshy, incarnate, in flesh. That God would send the word the final and full revelation of God into flesh is a gracious act. That then God the Son, the bread from heaven, would come down and reveal God is all grace. And what do God's people often do in the Old Testament when grace is given to them again and again, as we read in Numbers 11? They get grace. We ought to respond with gratefulness. But how do we respond with grace? Grumbling. It's never enough. It's not good enough, God. It's never enough. Thanks. We get grace upon grace, and what do we do? We grumble upon grumble. Who is he kidding? And Jesus says, what's going on there spiritually, verse 44, I get it, you're grumbling, but no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. If only they could see who is in front of them. The bread from heaven himself, God in flesh, is speaking. What Jesus wants to show them and show us is the significance of the spiritual explanation of who he is. Here is the triune God doing the work of God in the world, the word of God made flesh, the bread from heaven. He comes, it's Jesus And in his speaking, he is drawing some to himself. I love how he uses the word draw here. When when John the Apostle writes this gospel, the word draw is used, you can follow it, throughout the gospel of John. It's also used in the book of Acts. And you'll notice, it's not just a gentleness of kind of like, hey, if you're interested, check it out, come over to our stall over here, we've got some interesting things. It's not that kind of draw. It's not kind of like, it's not that kind of draw. The word draw is literally drag. Ephesians 2 verse 1. How dead were we in our sins, friends? Very dead. Because you can't be half dead. You can't play dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What can dead people do for themselves? Can dead people wake up to the things of God? They cannot. They're dead. The only thing that brings a dead person to God is that God, by his spirit, drags them from death to life. Draws them. It's a dragging. In John's gospel, the word is used for dragging fish in a net. Dragging them from death to life. That is the spiritual power at work in what Jesus is saying. If you're going to listen to him, he will do that work now for you. As Jesus teaches this about being the bread, the people find it a bit hard to swallow. And so Jesus takes them to the Old Testament. They're in a synagogue. What is read every week in the synagogue, like we read an Old Testament passage? It's the Old Testament. It's the Bible that belongs to the Jews at the time. And so Jesus says, verse 45, this is written in the prophets, friends. 
Like what I'm saying, I'm not making it up on the spot. This is not a new thing. This has always been God's thing. Written in the prophets, that they'll be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from me, Jesus says, from the Father comes to me. Jesus fulfills all Old Testament prophecies. And he's come down from heaven for you. And Jesus wants to show us where we get so caught up in the physical thing. Can you see the spiritual reality is greater, friends? See, all they can think of is manna in the wilderness. Hey, God gave us bread from heaven and we ate it. And Jesus says, yeah, but that bread was physical bread. And what happened? You physically died. The spiritual reality is greater. Jesus wants to talk not just about the temporal things, but the eternal things. Things that we often take our eyes off. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. We need to feed on Jesus. But here's where we get confused. In church history, and even today, what does it mean to eat Jesus? Eating Jesus? That's the topic of the sermon. It's the title of the sermon called Eating Jesus. Because that's where the confusion lies. What does it mean to eat Jesus? And here's the second point. It means we get to feed on the gospel of Jesus. Let's hear Jesus again, verse 53. Not just to get uncomfortable, but to hear what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. These words have been confused by us over the centuries. You look in church history, there's two points I want to talk about here in this confusion. In the early church, when the Roman authorities or someone who had a beef with Christianity wanted to bully Christianity, can you guess what they said about Christians? Can you guess what they accused Christians of? We pick it up in 150 AD, we've got a first reference to it, so it's in the first and second century, this happens. Can you guess what they accused Christians of? Lots of things, really. But one of the things they accused Christians of, Tertullian picks it up, he has to give an answer to it, he's an apologist, is this. Christians are cannibals. Can't trust them. They're eating someone's flesh. They're drinking someone's blood. Terrible. Why would you trust Christians? This is a common accusation of the early church. Cannibalism. Because people are taking these verses and not reading them carefully. The second thing that happens, of course, in church history is much later. Around about 1250 AD, there's a council of the Roman Catholic Church, and ever since that council and ever since then, the Roman Catholic Church teaches to this day that when they have Lord's Supper, and they call it Eucharist and all sorts of things about that, when they have Lord's Supper, they literally believe, they literally teach that the bread and the juice, the bread and the wine, literally turn into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. It's called transubstantiation. Think transformers. Transforming of the substance. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that to this day. 
And then, of course, you may have heard, and just to point out, you know, the Lutheran Church, whom are our friends, but they've got some different thoughts on this, and a bit prickly about it, so when you make sure you talk to a Lutheran person and don't just read about it, ask them what they believe and teach. But what do we believe and teach? We believe and teach that Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. We have it last Sunday of the month, Lord's Supper and a lunch. We'll have a Lord's Supper next week. When we open that, and at the moment we're still running out of the COVID safe ones, we'll soon get into the normal ones. We run out, we've got a little light wafer off. That wafer is just that. What you're tasting is a tasteless wafer. And the juice is just that. It's a bit of cordial. Is not literally the flesh and blood of Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Why, why, why is that teaching right and the Roman Catholic teaching wrong? Why is that teaching right and what Rome was saying about Christians in 150 AD wrong? Why is that right? Because that's what Jesus says. In fact, if we just look carefully, we do this actually when we, when we go to the Lord's Supper. Jesus is addressing their confusion. In verse 52, it's the Jews that are saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's not like 150 AD this was made up. It's not like 1250 AD this was made up. There was no council that made it up. It was them. They're the ones right then and there that are saying, are you saying that you're literally going to give us your flesh and blood to eat? They're the ones with the confusion. And all Jesus is doing in the synagogue that day is clearing the confusion up. Because what is their problem? What is the problem with the Roman Catholic Church and the Council Ladder? And what is the problem of thinking it's physically, literally, Jesus' body, Jesus' blood? It's the same problem that everyone's had in John's Gospel up until now. Let's just backtrack a bit. The Samaritan woman, what was her problem in understanding? She literally thought Jesus was talking about H2O. When he said living water. What was Nicodemus's problem? He literally thought Jesus was talking about getting back into the womb somehow and being born again. This is the problem. We constantly miss the greatest spiritual reality that Jesus is saying. If we would just see it, we would know and believe what he's saying. The real question is not, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But instead is, will I eat right for eternal life? When Jesus is talking about eternal life and living forever, we can see what he means, can't we? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when we read, For Christ our Passover lamb was sacrificed, do we literally think that somehow on the cross they literally got a little lamb, meh, meh, and it had wool on him, and then they killed the lamb on the cross instead of Jesus and said, that's Jesus? In Revelation 19, verse 9, when we read that we're going to be one day, all of us here who believe in Christ, one day we will be at a wonderful feast, at the marriage supper of the lamb, do we literally think at the table there's going to be a little lamb going, man, it's going to have little wool. We get what an illustration is, don't we? We get what the greatest spiritual reality is. And when Jesus, on that night he was betrayed, when he took bread and when he took wine, and the Apostle Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians 11 and just quotes it and repeats it, and when he says, this is my body, and when he says, this is my blood, question, where is Jesus' body and blood at that point? It's in him. If I was to have a map of Bendigo and say, this is Bendigo, would you go, really? 
that's Bendigo? It fits on A3? You get what he's saying, don't you? Dear friends, Jesus is speaking about a greater spiritual reality. And if we can see it and believe it, we get eternal life. Feeding on the gospel is receiving and believing in the bread of life who is Jesus himself. It's to see this. Hebrews 10 verse 20, that he has opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, forgiveness of sins, new relationship with God. When Jesus speaks about his body, his blood, he's talking about him, the bread of life, that ends up going to a cross where his body is broken, where his blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And do you see? That's the cross, isn't it? Instead of our body being broken, instead of your blood being shed, instead of you facing death forever, he gave his life. The bread of life comes to die. And when Jesus says this, this is the third thing we see today. There are some people there that find this hard to understand. In fact, they find it scandalous. It's too hard. They say, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Verse 60. But Jesus, knowing in his heart that they're grumbling about this in their hearts, he says in verse 61, do you take offence at this? Are you offended? The word for offence in the Greek New Testament here is skandalidze. Can you guess what word comes from that? They're not just saying it's, oh goodness, this is hard to comprehend. Hmm, this is big philosophically. They're saying this is outright scandalous. This is ridiculous. I will not believe it. I'm a scientist. Or whatever it is we present to ourselves. I will not have a bar of it. And the one who created science and the world to study and the one who created all things and has now created in flesh speaks and they say it's scandalous. They'll come up with every reason in the world not to listen to this. Every reason in the world not to believe it. Every reason in the world not to let Jesus change everything for them. See, this is not an issue of the mind. This is an issue of the heart. Their acceptance of this or not is not an issue of their mind working it out. This is an issue of will their heart believe it. And we see they wish to leave it there. Literally, they wish to leave him. Jesus says in verse 62, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? One of Jesus' favourite sayings in the Gospel of John is Son of Man. In the Gospel of Kent, Son of Man. What does that mean? It comes from Daniel 7. If you know Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 7, it's a great passage. It's actually a picture of our future. Because there we see on the last day, there is in heaven this vision. The heavenly court sits in judgment. Books are opened and there comes one like a son of man. And what is Daniel saying? He's a human. And this human comes to the ancient of days and he is given all dominion and everlasting kingdom. What Daniel is seeing is it's Jesus, the God man in flesh who gets to be king of everything. Question is, friends, would you believe that? 
They say, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? But it's not hard to understand. It's hard for their hearts to believe it. Because they don't want to. Friends, you will always come up with reasons not to believe in Jesus. That's not because you're particularly more clever than the last generation. There are always reasons that human society has made up not to believe in Jesus. We use them as defeater beliefs. We use them as, don't talk to me, I'm Catholic, whatever it is. There are always reasons we can come up with not to listen to Jesus, not to believe in Jesus. But Jesus says, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus even knows then who's going to betray him. Notice with Judas, you can follow Jesus for three years. You can call yourself a Christian. You can go along the synagogue. You can hang out with the men. You can be friends, so to speak, with God himself, eye to eye, man to man, friend to friend, and yet not believe and betray instead and leave him. In this episode, we see a crowd following him. Verse 66, many are disciples. The word disciple means learner or follower, as Brendan prayed. And many of these learners have had enough of learning from Jesus. And they just want to walk away. How does Jesus feel about that? We're not particularly told, so we don't want to speculate. But know this, Jesus doesn't need crowds for self-validation. Now, Jesus is not, on, he's not a social media influencer. He, he's not kind of there going, I lost some likes today. I lost some followers. I must be doing something wrong. Can I get one of those Instagram accounts that gives me a high account? He has no interest in any of that. What is Jesus' interest in? Jesus doesn't come to get numbers of people following him. He comes to get numbers of people eternal life. And so he says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answers, where else have we to go? You have eternal life. You've got the words of eternal life, Jesus. Where else would we go? He's only coming to that same spiritual reality that we need to come to because of the spirit working. But as he says that, can you see, friends, here's where we finish. The response to Jesus can either be this. It can either be not listen anymore to Jesus and leave it there. Or it can be keep going to Jesus and feed on his words. Keep listening to Jesus. For where else have we to go? Can I ask you a, a personal question? Where else do you go? Where else do you go? to whatever it is. Do you, do you, where else do you go for life? Where else do you go to get that kind of you know, lifetime, your time, downtime, refreshing time? Where else do you go to get eternal life? Where else could you go? Do you go to pleasure? Do you go to just pleasing people? Do you go looking for people's affirmations? 
Do you go to where you know you can just grumble and people are going to listen to you because it feels good to vent and let it off your chest? Even if it's about a person who's not in the room. Where do you go to get that feeling? Where do you go to get that experience? Where do you go to get that life that actually you know secretly and momentarily might feel good but will always eternally disappoint you? Where do you go and you know disappoints you? Where do you go? Jesus says he is the only thing that gives you life and life eternal. Friends, there is a problem in our world. It's what caused the grumbling in Numbers 11. It's what causes us to go, that's enough of Jesus. It is sin. When I started preaching, you used to have to explain sin a lot. Because we were living in the 90s and early 2000s and bad stuff didn't happen to us. We were living in paradise. It's called Australia, but it's heaven by another name. But now, friends, war in Ukraine, floods, people burning their own families in cars out of vengeance, domestic violence, the way our political leaders speak of one another and bully people and then claim the high ground. I don't have to prove to you that sin exists, do I? Can we, can we actually get past that? We have not built the utopia we thought we would build. It doesn't exist. We live in the same place that Genesis 3 started out being. So if you wish to leave it there with Jesus, if you're just, you're just happy with this, this short-term temporal life full of sin and problems that exist in your own family, in your own marriages, in your own lives, in your friendships, in your workplaces, in community of Bendigo. It even pops up its head in our church, doesn't it? If you're happy to live with that sin in your heart and your life, eating away at you till you die, if you just want to leave it there with Jesus, where will you go? Where else is there to go? Where else promises a come down from heaven, come back from the dead guarantee? Where else is there to go? So friends, what is there for us to do now? We actually need to eat the bread. We actually need to eat the bread of life. How? By going to Jesus' words of eternal life and chewing on them, eating them, meditating on them, thinking on them during the week, hearing the preached word and thinking about that from Sunday through to next Sunday. How does this change everything in this moment for me now? Whatever moment that is for you, if I believe Jesus is the bread from heaven, will I receive him and will I believe on him and will I see him and his words shape my Monday and my Tuesday and my relationships and my anger and my anxieties and my fears and my failures? Will his words shape me? The manna from heaven was a gracious act of God to a grumbling people, wasn't it? Who would rather go back to Egypt, by the way, and follow God to the promised land. They'd rather go back to Egypt. And what does God do? Constantly give them grace along the way. 
And Jesus is the bread of heaven given to us by grace who are undeserving. If we're honest, friends, we go back to our sinful habits and unloving life constantly. And Jesus is the grace of God himself. Jesus says, I know you're a failure. I know you're a sinner. I know you're a sufferer. But you know what? Jesus says, I'm on your side. I came down from heaven for you. I know you grumble. I know you got sin in your heart. I know this morning there was stuff coming out of your heart that you are not happy with. I came, I'm on your side. That's why he went to the cross. That's why the bread from heaven comes down. Not to confront you so that you'd walk away, but to draw you so that you would see he's with you. By grace. By his love. Many of us feel guilt and we need grace. We need to chew on the bread of life, chew on the words of Jesus. When you feel that guilt rising up, the shame takes over you. Go and crack open a Bible and listen to Jesus. When you see that you failed again, listen to Jesus. The way we shape our services with confession of sin and assurance of pardon, listen to the assurance of pardon in Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus. We actually need to take his words in, chew over them, seeing our hearts moved. This is where we get relief. The Bible in your lap is a loaf of bread. It's got 66 slices of books all looking at the grace of God in Jesus Christ for you to chew on. Opening the Bible should not be a drudgery. It should be like opening a, a defibrillator we got at the back of the room. I need help. I need my heart to be rescued now. I need to hear the words of eternal life. You might read it at devotion at dinner. Talk about it and pray about it during the week. In your household, in your small group, amongst your friends, chew through it during the day. Friends, reading the Bible will never hinder your life. I know some of us have Bibles on devices. I've got nothing against devices. I've got one right here I have some notes on. But one of the things about devices is they've got other apps and they can distract you. And we know sometimes going to devices ends up in, well, places we shouldn't be. But if you open... Like this technology of paper is amazing because if you open a paper Bible, it doesn't have the other apps that distract you. And, and I'm not against devices. I'm just saying this, right? Have you noticed opening the Bible, even a paper Bible with this amazing technology, that'll never hinder you. Like it's never going to be bad for you to open the Bible. It's always going to be good for you. That is the gracious guarantee of Jesus himself. And that's what Peter sees. The words of eternal life are here. Facebook can wait. You'll still get there sometime today. But opening this, YouTube can wait. Yes, you can watch some funny videos and it lightens your heart. But opening this will never hinder your day. Never. In fact, it'll give you life. The Bible. Try it. Let's pray we will. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us this bread always. Give us Christ. As you provide for our daily breads, we say thank you. As you provide bread from heaven in Christ, we want to follow you, Lord. 
Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Please grow our taste for Jesus' words. And we're asking this, that as we grow in our taste for eating and chewing over Jesus' words, that we would have that experience of knowing eternal life in Christ and that experience of knowing Jesus changing our life. And so we pray this, we ask this, truly, truly, amen, amen, in Jesus' name.